0: One of the great ongoing lessons of designated times, such as Black History Month and Women's History Month, is how we, as human beings, have so often taken great pains to limit one another, to put each other down below ourselves, or to lift ourselves up above someone else, and how we continue to do so today. As we come to the end of Women's History Month, I want to share the story of one woman who felt the impact of that treatment and strove to undo it uh, as uh, passionately and as imperfectly as she did. In the 1800s, the Reverend Olympia Brown knew firsthand the reach of scripture and culture in limiting women. And yet she continued on with ministry, with family, and with a tireless effort to achieve a woman's right to vote. Reverend Olympia Brown was the first woman in this country to be ordained and recognized as a minister by a denominational body. And her second life's passion, uh, she opened to, she sought to open opportunities for women to gain education and to own property and very much to have the right to vote. Now, Olympia Brown was born in Prairie Ronde, Michigan on January 5th 1835. Her father Asa, who sought, who brought his eldest daughter with him as he rode from house to house on the prairie uh, to raise funds for a teacher, was modeling the kind of leadership that uh, that she would aspire to. He also built a schoolhouse on the family land. And later, When Olympia and one of her sisters were older, she convinced her father to send them to college in Western Massachusetts, all the way from Michigan. Now, unfortunately, uh, the rigid experience of a year at Mount Holyoke led the family to search for a new school. And Olympia went on to thrive at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Antioch was such a success for her that the whole family moved there to provide education for all four of the siblings. And it was at Antioch that Olympia first encountered the possibilities of women who could preach. She invited Antoinette Brown, the first woman ordained by a universalist church in this country to speak. And inspired by Antoinette, Olympia's next step was to go to theological school. Now, Olympia's daughter, Gwendolyn Brown-Willis, she says, the ministry was the first objective of her life since in her youthful enthusiasm, uh, she believed that freedom of religious thought and a liberal church would supply the groundwork for all other freedoms. But Olympia had to be accepted into a program first. And time and again, she applied and was turned away Uh, Some institutions thought it was too risky to bring on a woman at that time, and some wouldn't accept her into a program for active ministry. But then there was Ebenezer Fisher, who was the president of St. Lawrence Theological School, and, well, he got so caught up in discouraging her that he inadvertently accepted her. And he said, he wrote to her, You may have some prejudices to encounter in the institution from students and also in the community here. The faculty will receive and treat you precisely as they would any other student. My own judgment is that it is not expedient for women to become preachers, but I consider it purely a question of experience and not at all of right. The right I cannot question and I am willing to leave it between you and the great head of the church, in other words, God. He says, If you feel he, God, has called you to preach the everlasting gospel, you shall receive from me no hindrance, but rather every aid in my power. Hmm. And that message was how Olympia thought, Well. That's how Olympia thought the matter should be handled. It should be between her and God. And so she showed up in September, 1861, not at all expected at St. Lawrence Theological School, since Fisher thought he had been sufficiently um, grim. But he did welcome her as a student. And that first year was a challenge. Her classmates, among other things, teased her for the high pitch of her voice. For example... And she wrote that her second year was, well, less disagreeable than the first. Mm. But let me also offer a note about Olympia herself. To put it simply, she wasn't actually the most agreeable person. Her daughter Gwendolyn wrote that Olympia was, indomitable and uncompromising, traits that do not lend themselves well to politics and leadership. And at the same time, people wanted her to be their preacher. In 1863, when she sought ordination, she met resistance again from Ebenezer Fisher. And so she applied to the Northern Universalist Association that was set to meet in New York. The ordaining council accepted her. And during the ceremony, even Ebenezer Fisher felt the spirit of the movement and took part in the service. Although he was a little grumpy when he observed that now the floodgates would open and there would be 15 women in the next class. Olympia went on into active parish ministry and one of those best experiences came from her time with, in uh, Boston, in the Boston area at Weymouth Landing. Now this congregation was struggling to survive and few of the ministers who were men were willing to serve them. And so Olympia went. And there, John Willis started to court her. So that's another development. But she also, during her ministry there, became involved with the right of women to vote and was a founder of the New England Women's Suffrage Association. One of my favorite parts of her story is her effort to get the vote in Kansas. In 1867, during a leave from her ministry at Weymouth, Olympia went uh, to Kansas to urge the passage of a women's suffrage amendment. Now, Kansas in 1867 is very much the frontier. So when she arrived, though she had been assured things were prepared, nothing had been made ready. So she made all of the arrangements for speaking, for lodging, for travel, for publicity, For everything, as a woman traveling by herself, advocating for a cause that was unwelcome by many, to say the least. And Olympia did this for four months in the heat of summer, making 300 speeches. The amendment didn't pass, but a third of the voters, all men, had said yes. Susan B. Anthony herself declared Olympia's effort a triumph. Now, in 1870, uh, Olympia finished her work at Weymouth Landing and went to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and John Willis followed and sought to marry her. And so they did, and thus started a partnership and a devoted relationship that's a rare find in any time, and rarer still for how well John did everything in in his power to support her ministry. Olympia did the hard work and was praised by so many members of that congregation, but she was also hampered by people who didn't want a woman as a minister. And the fight grew ugly and split the church. And Olympia moved on to another, unfortunately appointed congregation, this time in Racine, Wisconsin. Now her husband John went ahead and found a job and a house And then Olympia followed with their two children and with her mother. For nine years the Church of the Good Shepherd grew under her ministry and it became a center for learning and culture including speakers such as Julia Ward Howe and Susan B. Anthony and when the congregation could sustain itself she changed careers and became a full-time advocate for women's suffrage. Her daughter Gwendolyn goes on to say Olympia cared little for society, paid no deference to wealth, represented an unfashionable church, and promoted a cause, women's suffrage, that was regarded as certain to be unsuccessful. And she was troublesome because she asked people to do things, to work, to contribute money, to go to meetings, to think and to declare themselves openly in favor of a principle or a public measure. She asked people to show up. But she also herself showed up. One example of how she did was uh, in 1817, President Woodrow Wilson had been set against women's suffrage. And Olympia Brown didn't just protest against this. Uh, She didn't just speak about this. She went to the White House and publicly burned Wilson's speeches on the White House front lawn. In the end, she was one of the few most active suffragettes to have a chance to vote. And she voted first in 1919 at the age of 86. And she was able to vote in one more election before her death at age 91 in 1926. Olympia's first call was to ministry, for it was in the liberal church that she felt freedom of religious thought and in the institution of the liberal church would be the starting place for all other freedoms. As Gwendolyn said, her difficulties and disillusionments in the field of ministry were so many, were so numerous, that Olympia could rise superior to such difficulties and disillusionments was the consequence of the hopefulness and the courage with which she was so richly endowed. She had that indomitable spirit. I have to say, I encountered Olympia, uh, her biography in my early readings for Divinity School. Um, This is partially why I love sharing the story and reading about her story again and again. minister who served the church where I grew up, um, she uh, helped me with my own start in ministry by giving me much of her collection from when she began in ministry. And that minister was in her early 30s, was West Coast born, serving in New England, and she was the first woman to serve as the minister of that congregation. And she was passing the learning and that experience from one generation to the next. And so here I am discovering Olympia Brown's story, this indomitable person with so much faith. And I have told Olympia's story many times and every time I come back to it, I am in awe of her all over again. She was one of our great preachers and great pioneers. But this time, in this story of spirit and strength. I need to add an important note for what I know now. One of the problems with the suffragette movement was how they argued against other people getting the vote, even as they sought to enfranchise white women. They often argued against giving the vote to immigrants and to people of color. They might make their case by saying that foreigners We're voting at higher rates of the native born white men. And the best way, they would say, to keep control of our country is to expand the voting population to white women. And this year, this year, I truly found examples of Olympia Brown using those kinds of arguments to make her case. She was making that argument, especially about foreigners as well. So this same minister who I admired and perpetua- who I admire, um, also perpetuated and amplified fear and xenophobia. And the legacy of such messages offered by probably so many voices in our past, this is part of what we are feeling in recent years. And some of that legacy showed up yet again uh, this week in Georgia. With the bill to limit voting and to undermine those who are black and poor so the praise we can do all manner of praising and admiration but it also has to have authentic critique and here is mine because otherwise we risk adding to the harm that's already present in the system our task in these periods of understanding history is to study and honor the stories and to get to know who we have been, because that certainly informs who we are. Becoming familiar with the complicated motives and actions helps our reflections. And we can be thankful and thoughtful about celebrated humans And then determine the path that we wish to choose knowing that we will still falter and fail as well as be fabulous i invite us to take our strength and our values seriously including our commitment to an examined faith as we are charged by theologian james luther adams to stand by this faith as olympia brown tells us is not automatic and not obvious. It is a commitment to our collective liberation and to what needs to evolve in us in service to the larger hope, the larger love and the larger healing of the world. As we honor those who've gone before and take strength from their character and their success, may we also be so bold to understand the, the whole story as much as we can learn it and may we draw strength from the complete picture the wide span of our lives all that is part of what we encounter and use that that experience of becoming more whole to be a place where we can launch into further compassion further service and further care let us be so bold. Amen.